Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Voice for Victims podcast. Stand up and speak up. Welcome, everyone, to Voice for Victims podcast with your host, Crystal Starn. Tonight, we have a special guest that's going to be on the show. He is from Indiana and now lives in Oklahoma, and he has faced a lot of challenges over the years, and he also wrote a book that's going to be published soon. And he is going to be talking about his entire story tonight. So let's welcome Jamie McCormick to the show. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hey, Crystal. I'm fantastic. How are you? Thank you for having me I'm on. I'm good. Oh, you're welcome. So how is your day going so far? Or night, it's, I guess. It's actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's going well. The heat finally broke. It's starting to rain, so things are looking up. Things are cooling down. So it's That's all right. awesome. Good day. That is awesome. Well, I want to thank you as well for coming on the show. Your story is amazing, and I can't wait for you to share it with everyone listening. Um, if you want to oh. start, um, maybe just tell your the audience like a little bit about who Jamie is and your background. Okay, uh, Jimmy, as a nuts in, in in a nutshell, is a uh, is a rough around the edge failure that found success, um, not of his own hand, but the failure was of his own doing. And I want to say that I'm, I'm very blessed to be here on your show, and and um, by blessed I don't mean just actually on your show, but I mean alive. Um, uh, probably a few months before my daughter was born, I actually found myself laying on the floor of a drug dealer's bathroom and I had OD'd. I was dying. And that was a place I never found myself. I had some pretty good success in my young life. At the end of there was, um, at the moment it wasn't a shock. It was just part of a drug dealer's life. But as I look back on it, it's pretty shocking that I ended up there to begin with. Now that I've been sober for quite a amount, you know, and, uh, I started off, as you said, in Indiana, and my dad was never around, so it was just my mom raising me and my brother. We did a lot of moving, and we ended up going to five or five different states for almost ten different schools, so I didn't have a lot of friends. I was moving around, doing this and that. And then when we get to Oklahoma, it was pretty stationary. Mom had, mom had married this guy, and we had found a stability. We had found a base, a school where we could make friends. And we did. Me and my brother fit in very well, playing football, girlfriend, that like. Um, so it was a pretty normal childhood. That's why I say my failures were my own doing. I wasn't molested as a kid. Or I wasn't abused. I wasn't um, ignored or avoided or any of that. My mom, had, you know, she, she did the best she could as a single mom. And so my failures were definitely of my own hand. And it was probably 1990 when things really started going down for me up until then when we got to Oklahoma we got to Oklahoma in 1987 and I became friends with these guys and had a best friend and a couple of friends we we got into really drinking and partying and that's the lifestyle that I thought I was looking for I thought it's what I was always wanting it's the first time that I really fit in anywhere so we were into like a skydiving co- concerts and comic books playing Dungeons and Dragons and we would party all weekend our parties got huge they got legendary and we all walked like we were bulletproof. We, we acted like it. We talked like it. 
we had attitudes and we wore it on our shoulder. And it was the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, and it, it was just all about attitude for us back then. Nobody could shut us down. Nobody could shut us up. And we didn't care who you were. But then on December 8th, 1990, that's when things really changed for all of us. And we realized that we weren't 10 foot tall. We realized we weren't bulletproof. We were having a party. And uh, I was inebriated, of course, as many of us were. And it was just a, a weird night that night. There was a storm going on, and we were just kind of out doing our thing. And then my brother came home, and I was throwing up over a railroad tie. I said hi to him. He said hi, and he walked in. Uh, he joined the party. He started drinking. Then him and another friend left, and uh, I went to bed. I didn't think nothing about it. It was probably 1 in the morning when I went to bed. And about, I don't know, I think 6 o'clock. No, 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 it was much earlier. It was about 3 o'clock. I woke up, and I went into the living room, and the first thing I noticed, Crystal, was the silence. Now, our party's loud, rock and roll playing, lots of talking, but there was nothing. And when I went to the living room, all I could hear was a static coming from the stereo speakers. And the silence was so heavy, you could wear it like a coat. And I walked in, and there were into the living room, there were a couple people sitting on the chair. My brother's girlfriend was sitting on a stool with her hands folded between her legs. And I said, what's going on? And she said, Mike and Mike have been in a wreck. Now, Mike was my brother, and then there was another friend of ours named Mike who had left that night. And I looked at him, and I said, it's okay. They'll be fine. And she's kind of like, yeah. And I, I turned around, and I walked back down the hallway, still drunk, head still spinning, couldn't see. And then about 6 o'clock, that's when my friend woke me up, and he said, we have to go to your mom's. And I said, what happened to my brother? And he said, we have to go to your mom's. And that's when I found out that my brother died. And I was, my life changed forever. I went from a, you know, having a brother to being an only child. And that's the first time reality hit us in the eyes that we weren't the characters we were portraying. We weren't bulletproof. We weren't immortal. We weren't as strong as we thought we were. We were very finite beings. And you think that would straighten us up a little bit. But it, it really didn't. And we had to have a funeral for my brother. We flew his body to Indiana. So we have a funeral up there, and that's where he ended up being buried because that's where we're from. And then when I got back, many of us handled his loss in different ways. Many of us just kept drinking. Uh, some of us straightened up. His girlfriend slowly quit coming around because she was the only reason he came around. So before long, we weren't talking to her. And some of us just dove into work. We dove into partying. We dove into whatever we could to not accept the fact one of us is gone. And yet one of us was gone. And we, we didn't handle it well. Um, as for me, I just kept on drinking. I never did serious drugs like meth or coke or anything like that. We would get high every now and then. And I, I joined martial arts when I was about 22. And that was my ground. That I, I really felt that I connected in martial arts. I was good at it. I, I rose through the ranks quickly. Within a year and a half, I had my black belt. And within another year, I was promoted to my second degree by Sensei Phil Porter. He was, at the time, the United States Martial Arts Association president. And he looked at my instructor, and he said, uh, he told me that he has a lot of good fighters. He pointed at me and Roy, one of the other students that I started with. He said, excellent fighters. Promote them. And we were. We were really good. No one could touch us around here. But that was my grounding. That helped me escape the 
the loss of my brother's death. I mean, did I miss him? Yeah, but I didn't dwell on it. I had something going. I was teaching class. I was doing good. Things were all right. And then one of my friends had a boss who was building a house down in Texas, and he was getting a driveway remodeling. He wanted my friend to go look at it, make sure it was coming along. And my friend asked me if I wanted to go, and I said, sure. So I show up at his house, and I'm sitting at a square table, and he walks by me, throws a bag over my shoulder, and it hits the table. And he says, do you want some? As he walks away. And I look at it, and it's a pack of this white powder, which was methamphetamine. And I had never done meth and didn't even really know what it looked like. So I said, sure. I cut it open. I snorted the line. And come to find out, I did a half gram for my first time. Now, for those that don't know, that's quite a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, so we go down to Texas, and it was very talkative. I pointed out every cow on the trip. Man, I never felt that energy. And the best way I can explain crank is it's an uncontrolled energy. You have to do something. You don't care what. You have to talk about something. You don't care what, but you just have to move. You have to paint your house. You have to dig a hole, build a fence, something. So our, our trip to Texas was very talkative. So I get back, and I tell my girlfriend, hey, you know, I tried math, and she just kind of looked at me. She said, so how'd you like it? And I said, I don't know. I don't find myself, I don't see myself doing it again. Because at this time, I was still a martial artist. I was doing very, very well. And then um, in 1994, my instructor approached me, and he said, I have a proposition for you. And I asked him what it was. He said, well, I think you need to try out for the Olympics for 1996. He said, you got two years. We'll get you ready. So I, all of a sudden, I became an Olympic hopeful. I was like, wow, that's, that's me, you know. And uh, But instead of doing that, I ended up doing drugs again. And then I did it again, and then I did it again. And pretty soon, um, I found myself wanting to do that more than I wanted myself to work out. So I never contacted the Olympic team. They never found out who I was, never went to the Olympics. And that's probably the only thing I really regret. You know, if I'd have gone, if I'd have came in even 10th, there's only nine guys in the world better than me. But what if I'd have come in first? That's something I'll never know. I always heard it said, there's nothing more powerful than sword or pen except four mighty words, what might have been. And that what might have been is the only thing in my life. Well, well nah, it's one of the few things that I really regret not pursuing. So I, as my drug abuse got worse, or my drug use, I wasn't quite abusing yet, I don't think. Um, the friends that I had, I distanced from them because they weren't doing it. They wanted nothing to do with it. So I found a different group of friends who were into heavier drugs, heavier attitude, heavier music, a heavier lifestyle, harder, faster, and I fit in with them just a little bit better because of the lifestyle I was living. And all of a sudden, I wasn't mama's little boy anymore. I was turning into something else. I wasn't this black belt anymore. I was turning into something else. And these guys were shooting up, using the needle. They asked me several times if I wanted to join, and I said, no, I don't really think so. And I passed it up for a long time, but I, I watched them, and they each acted very differently. One would just sit there and comb his long hair. The other one would draw pictures. Another guy would walk around, play guitar, out just, just hours, hours, days on end, until they actually had flesh hanging off his fingers and playing so much. And I never saw the allure of it. And then one day, I finally gave in. Well, okay, give in is the wrong word. I don't believe in peer pressure. I believe we're all very equipped to make our own choices. So I, I chose to engage with them. So the needle hit my arm, and that's when I realized I was losing this battle. That's when I realized the needle was in control. No matter how hard I could fight, and I was a pretty good fighter, I couldn't fight this. I was 
by Dunloss. And it took me down a slippery slope into this hole of this blackness of this very like thin veil, but I couldn't break through it back into the light. I just, I was, I was stuck. And so over the years, it got worse and worse. Uh, people in martial arts knew, and I eventually quit when I walked in one day and they go, Hey, there's Jamie. He's on drugs now. That was humbling and it was embarrassing at the same time. But instead of letting that push me away from drugs and back into martial arts, I let this push me completely out. And then as the time went on, I got skinnier. My muscle tone was going away. My hair was getting greasy. I was looking like a, I guess like what you would expect a junkie to look like. And then one night I went to my dealer's house and we were talking about different things, like who owed money. And back then, Crystal, I actually got a lot of drugs for free because I was a collector. I took everything I learned in martial arts and misused it and abused it. I would go collect money for these dealers and I'd get free dope in return or I'd get some other sort of payment in return. So I'd never pay for my drugs. It was all free. So that's what we were talking about. And we eventually got around to the reason I was there, which was the high. And I'd been up many days and uh, I was real shaky. I couldn't do it myself. So I asked him to do it for me. Now that in itself is a sign of trust. If you have someone else shoot you up, that's, that's a life or death situation there. But he did. He tied off my arm, put the needle in, and when the syringe went in, pushing the drugs in, the it, what's called a rush hit me immediately. And he pulled the needle out, and I jumped to my feet, but he didn't get away in time. He stuck me with the needle again, and he backed up a couple of steps forward, and the room closed in on me. I, I couldn't concentrate. It was like I was running through um, quicksand. I, I was trying to move, but I, but I couldn't, and then I blacked out. I lost all consciousness. And I don't know how much time passed, but when I woke up, that's when I was laying on the bathroom floor. I, he had my shirt off. He was knelt down next to me. He was putting wet, wet rags on me. Uh, his girlfriend was a nurse. She was taking my vitals. My heartbeat was over 230 beats a minute. And if, for those of you that don't know, that's, that's deadly. I, I should not have survived that. And the only explanation I have is God had a plan for my life. That's the only explanation I have is why I made it up off of that floor. So I get up off the floor, and we just act like it didn't happen. He asked me if I was okay. I said, yeah, I'm fine. He said, you sure? I said, I'm good. And we went right back to doing more drugs. It was more drugs. It was getting bad. It, I mean, we were just – our whole goal was to get high quicker than you, faster, harder, stronger, worse, better than you, and you can either come along with us or leave you behind. And that was our goal. But through it all – I still had this one friend, his name was Johnny, and that's the guy who introduced me to drugs. And I don't hold that against him. I mean, I did it on my own accord, but he and I have been best friends for, oh, my goodness, many, many, many years. And uh, we were just always hanging out together. And we were even working at the same place. It was, taking, uh, it was in the mental health field. And uh, one night I was standing there, and this girl walked by, and I asked her name. She introduced herself, and I asked her if she'd like to get a drink. And surprisingly, she said, yeah. Because I didn't look like anybody you wanted to date. I don't sure didn't have the attitude of anybody you wanted to date. And so we started dating. And one thing led to another. And um, I moved in with her. But I couldn't hide my addiction. She would walk in and be living the foil out or, or spoons or, or something. She would always ask me and I'd always deny it. And she kicked me out several times and then walked me back in. And then one time she kicked me out and just kind of said it was done. I was like, all right, cool. So I went to 
a local town and had a house there. And then in November of 2001, she called me. And this is another thing that changed my life. Because at this point, Crystal, I was not suicidal, but I did not care if I lived. None of us did. We were reckless. We were running with, the, with great abandon. And we were heading death straight on. And we did not care. So we weren't – well, I say we weren't suicidal, but I guess the lifestyle like that, that's the only thing you can be. So anyways, she called me, and I'm talking to her. And within about five minutes of the conversation, she said, uh, I need to tell you something. I said, what? She said, well, I'm pregnant, and I'm leaving you for your best friend. And that best friend was the same guy that introduced me to drugs, same guy that been friends with all this, all this time. And I didn't know what to think, but I hung up the phone. And a few months earlier, well, actually probably a month earlier, Mama take me to this revival. And there was this pastor who was prophesying over people in the audience. And he looked at me, and I put my head down. I said, keep walking, just keep walking. And he did. He kept walking. And then he turned around and looked at me again. And again, I put my head down. I was like, man, just keep walking. But he walked right up to me. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, God's going to take everything out of your life to bring you closer to him. And when she said that on the phone, that's the word that was ringing through my head because my brother was dead. I had very few friends. I no longer had a girlfriend. I no longer had a best friend. And that, that statement kept rattling around in my head like, what is going on? And I was like, could this one thing that this pastor said over me could have possibly become a true? I mean, I wasn't a Christian. I don't know what I really believed about God back then, but I, I was just stuck rebounding that over and over in my head. So I went in my bathroom. I looked in my mirror, and what I saw, Crystal, wasn't a martial artist. It wasn't anything that I used to be. It was a, it was a druggie for the first time, and I'd looked at myself in that mirror for a hundred times for the first time. I saw my character. I was ripped wide open, and I looked dead. My eyes were sunk in. My cheeks were sunk in. My hair was greasy. My skin was shiny. I looked like a walking dead guy. I looked like a drug addict. I started talking to myself and asking myself questions, and I think they're questions that I needed someone else to ask me sooner, but nobody did, and those who did, I argued with, and uh, then the friendship would end shortly after that, so I lost many friends through my addiction because I just, again, I didn't care. It was all about me and nobody else. But through this, I started thinking of this life that was about to come into this world. And I started thinking about, thinking about my dad, how little he was around. Um, my dad was around, I, I don't know, not much. My mom left him when we were two. I saw him a handful of times after that. And the man was dead for six years. I didn't even know he was dead. So that shows how little of a relationship we actually had. But as I looked in that mirror... I decided I was going to do three things because I started speaking to myself and I realized my daughter or, or my, my child, I didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And I said, this child needs a dad who's going to be there. The, he, this child needs a dad better than my dad. So I, so I made three decisions. One, I was going to start going to church because I was 31 at the time. And in all that time, I had done the drinking, the one night stands, the fist fighting, the drugs. And all it did was get me addicted to drugs with a child on the way. And I actually said this to myself. I said, if God is so good, how much more can he mess my life up? Because on my own, I messed it up pretty darn good. So I thought, let's give it a chance. Well, he's already so loving. Let's find out. And I, I became a Christian that day. And even though I've fallen many times, I've never looked back. I trusted him to this day with, with everything. Everything that is good about me that anybody likes is not in my own hand. I promise you that. It's from the hand of God.
That's not me because I know I can use my own life, and I wreck it pretty well. And the second thing I decided to do was stop hanging out with people who were going to wreck my life. Those people who wanted to do drugs, who wanted to drink, I I needed to stop hanging out with them because I believe bad company corrupts good character. And I always sort of say, show me the five people you hang out with the most, I can show you who you are. And I believe that. You, You pick up attributes from people that you hang out with, whether they're good or whether they're bad. So I made that choice. I had friends tell me that they wanted me to bring my daughter over. And she's 20 now, and there's still, I still have friends that she's barely met. And they asked me why I don't bring her over, and I said, man, because you do drugs. you got drinking. Your house is a wreck. you got different women every night. And they're like, well, I can't, you know, that I can't tell them what to do at their own house. I can't if you want me to have my daughter over. That I can. There's things I, I, I didn't allow her to be around. And the third thing I did is I kept her my focus. And then once I realized that she was my focus, I became to realize I always had something to focus on, my mom. My friends, I had other things that were good in my life that I ignored because of drugs. So her coming into this world completely changed my life. And I have no doubt, Crystal, that my daughter is the reason I'm alive. I believe God gave me my daughter to save my life. I have no doubt about that. And so at that point, me and my best friend, Johnny, also quit becoming friends because I, I just couldn't have that. And he got together with my ex. They got married, had a kid, got divorced, yada, yada, and through it all. He kept trying to rebuild this friendship, and I would never do it. And I approached him several times. I was like, man, you're wrong. This and that. What are you doing? And his response to me was, well, you shouldn't have been such a good friend. And that blew me away. I always put my friends on a pedestal. I think if you treat someone like a friend, or no, actually I said it backwards. If you say someone's a friend, you should treat them like they're a friend. You don't treat them like they're a convenience. You don't treat them like anything else. So I expected my friends to do the same thing to me, and they didn't. And that was a lesson learned. And it was a hard lesson learned. So I went looking for him three times. I was going to smash his head in, but all three times I just put my head down. I couldn't touch him. I let him walk by, and people said that I was a better man. I did better than they could have done, but I didn't feel like it. I felt like a guy who had been trashed and stepped on and, and all this jazz, and things just weren't looking up for me. So my daughter comes on May 10th, 2002, and she was just the most precious thing. I, I didn't even get to see her for the first um three days of her life because her mom still held it against me for being a drug addict and all this stuff. And, and I don't think I blame her. I mean, I have a lot to prove, but it, it, it made things hard. She didn't trust me. She didn't want my daughter around me. So for the first three days, I didn't get to see my daughter. And that was a long 72 hours. But when I did, when I finally held her, I realized what this unconditional love was that the Bible keeps talking about. I looked at this little human being and for some reason, God looked down on me in my drug-ridden haze and said, here, this is your daughter. Take care of her. She belongs to me. And she became my responsibility. And why he would do that to me, I, it still boggles my mind other than to save my life because it sure did. She, um, I don't think that life gave me the gift of her. She gave me the gift of life, if that makes any sense. And things just kind of slowly started turning around. I started um, – Going back to martial arts, I started reading the Bible and, and memorizing scripture and actually applying it to my life, not just reading it to do it. I wanted to actually be this change because I knew I had a little girl looking up to me like my dad had me looking up. But I wanted a better example. I wanted a visible example, someone who was actually there for her. And then over the years, um, Johnny would try to rekindle our friendship, but I wanted nothing to do with it, nothing at all. And 
through everything that I was learning, I found forgiveness the hardest thing to do. And I would find it in the most unexpected, tragic way, I guess, that you can find forgiveness. Um, Johnny became a, a policeman here in one of the local towns, and he got in trouble, went to prison for a little while, and he got all out and had to wear an ankle monitor. And one day he went to help his sister move, and she had to go run an errand. When she came back, the ankle monitor was busted off, her gun case was open, and her gun was gone. It was a little pistol. And as soon as I heard that crystal, I knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, uh, the police caught up with him and put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. We had a burying on uh, August 26, 2015. So I had to stand there at the funeral, look down in his coffin, and I could still see the bullet hole in his temple. I could see where they put cotton in it and tried to paint it to make it look good. But that is a weird feeling. You see your best friend laying there, or guy used to be your best friend, with a bullet hole in his head. But as I looked down at him, all of a sudden, now I had this forgiveness. Now I wasn't mad at him. And now I was okay. Now I wish I could talk to him. And it's funny how when our own mortality is faced, then we want to make things right. Then we want to do things. And I always use this analogy. If an angel were to come down and tell us that we have seven days to live, how hard would we try to fix that relationship? How hard would we try to get forgiveness or give forgiveness? How hard would we try to get that business off the ground? But the truth is, you may only have seven days. You may die tomorrow. So I, I always encourage people, whatever they're going through, whatever they probably have with somebody, they need to fix it today because they're not guaranteed tomorrow, and neither is the person they're mad at. we got to get stuff done today because time is not on our side. It is infinite, but we are not. And after he died, then I found this, this ability to forgive him. But I don't let it eat at me. I knew I made a mistake, and that's how I learned to fix problems now. And it took his death to get me to realize that. But if I have a problem, I go try to talk to somebody. And his death got me to call all the people, well, as many as, as the numbers I had. I, I, I called 27 people, uh, almost 30. I called uh, ex-girlfriends, friends, family members, and I apologized to them for being such a jerk. And some of them were okay with it. They understood I was an addict, and they understood I was in my right mind. But some of them, Crystal, they wanted nothing to do with me. They thought I was a punk then think I'm a punk now. It's hard to break it off of you. And I would go to hang out with some of my friends and so try to get them to come to church, and they couldn't believe that I was going to church. I'm like, dude, I never saw that in you. I was like, yeah, me neither. Because right when I would, back when I was on drugs, my mom would pull me to church. That's how she got me that revival. But I would just sit in the back, and I would just wait for it to be over. I just wanted to go get high. And, uh, and, um, but I would pay attention to what the pastor was saying, and it always made sense for me. So right after church, I would go back to start doing drugs, and we'd be cutting out the lines or whatever. And I would ask them if they knew about Jesus, and they would just look at me, and they would go, man, you know how to bring down a party. I would say, yeah, but listen to what Jesus did. So I was a Christ-preaching addict. That may sound weird, but that's what it was. And so his, his, so his death got me to call those people, and I had a lot to prove. But some of them were receptive and some of them weren't receptive. And then over the years, you know, my life improved that when people in church started hearing about me being a drug addict, they're like, man, I never saw that in you. So it went from having a 
stigma of being an addict was finally off of me. And it took years and years for that to get off of me, but it finally did. And now people don't believe that I ever once did drugs, and thank God for that, because that was such a scummy time in my life. And the whole way that I got to where I became a uh, public speaker, you and I were talking about, am I a motivational speaker? I'm, I'm not. I, I'm a guy who inspires to inspire. I don't believe too much in motivation because that's kind of limited. Motivation gets you to the gym, but it's determination that keeps you there. Keep going. So I try to inspire to inspire. That, that's how I like to look at it. And then I, um, over the years, I had several jobs, but I took a job at a local psychiatric hospital here. And I talked to thousands of people literally over the 10 years I was there, people who were broken, who, who were uh, divorced, who got beat up, whose heads got caved in, the drug addicted, elderly, the, the young, the depressed, the, the, those who thought they were hopeless. And I started doing basically what I'm telling you is what I would tell them. We would do this group, and I would tell them my story. And I'm like, guys, time is limited, just like you know I'm saying now. And, and I had an elderly lady one time tell me that my words saved her life. She said she came to the hospital, and then I gave my little speech, and she left. And then something bad happened, and she thought suicide was the only answer, so she got a bottle of pills. And as she was looking at the pills, she remembered my words, which I always say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Whatever it is you're going through, we can get you through it. You may not like the results. You may not be extremely happy. But we can get you through it. That's why my main focus of my speech is a purpose-driven perspective because we have to look at things correctly. You're so good at making mountains out of molehills. And besides that lady telling me that, my, that I saved her life, many of the patients told me that I should put my words on the CD they listened to in their car. I should write a book. So I wrote my story down. It's called A Man Rising. And it said the editor's right now, so I'm waiting on actually to hear back from her. And then we're, we, I don't know the remaining steps, but it should be published here, hopefully within the next three or four months is what I'm looking at. But you want people to, to know about me? That, that's me. That's who I am. Wow. You've been yeah. a major ordeal, <laughs> major, and yeah. you've overcome it, and it's just amazing, and you're going to help a lot more people going forward. I have no doubt that you're going to inspire, that is my and goal. I think you need Yes. Yeah. Um, I actually had someone ask me, how many people do I want to help? And I said, everybody. And he said, well, that's, that's too big of a number. And my response was, why? Why is it too big of a number? Obviously, you probably can't help everybody, and probably not everyone can just want to hear my story, but we should have that desire to help as many people as we can before we die. That's, that's my goal, is to help as many people change their thinking before I draw my last breath. I, I totally agree with you, because I, I feel the same way. Like, that's, you know, the why I started the Voice for Victims. I want to try to help as many people as I can going forward. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm so happy we connected, because you... Um, you are an inspiration, and your story you. needs to get out there because there's so many people out there that's suffering, um, you know, like what you went through all these years. I mean, you, you know, didn't have a father figure. You had lost your brother. You know, then you lost your best friend. You had a lot of trauma you were dealing with all those years, and I really believe that, you know, that probably helped, helped lead you to the drug use. You know, you may not have realized it at the time, but you were you were traumatized traumatized by all the events that happened in your life and you know and those were important events i mean like father figures yeah. 
it's important to have those parents and, you know, that can affect a person. And then like, you know, the loss of your brother, that would be devastating. Loss of your best friend would be devastating, you know, just everything, like listening to you, I could hear it, you know, just like, and feel it like your pain just by listening to you and you will really reach out to people. I, I just know that I have no doubt that you're going to help people. Your, your story. Oh, I appreciate amazing. that. Yeah. You're that welcome. Is, I think that's the reason that we have this, all of us have is every one of us can help somebody, but we don't know how to get out there. And many people need help, but they don't know who to reach to, you know, and that's why I do it. So I can go out there and reach those people. I have a story that's for everybody from the homeless person up to the CEO, and that's who I want to reach. You know, I don't care if you're the CEO of a company or you're a homeless person on the street. Let's talk. I may have something for you. Right. And I do believe that you had God with you the whole time. You know, so, I mean, you're oh. a guardian angel, definitely. There's no doubt. Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As I look back on my life now, Crystal, I can name numerous times I should have been um, – dead, shot, at least beat up. Me and a buddy, when I said that I became a collector, we actually went to this uh, guy's house to collect money. I had a little Chevy S10, and we knocked on his door, and I was behind my friend, and he opened it, and Stacy just said, we're here to take your stuff. And the guy went to object, and he put his finger in his, in his eye. He said, we're here to take your stuff. And we just walked on in his home, and the poor guy sat on his couch and didn't do nothing. And we, we just went in and took what we wanted. So there are many times I probably should not have made it out alive. And I know by uh, yeah, it was the hand of God that I'm here because that's just not right. something normal people do and get away with. <laughs> now, when you so. were, like, after you went through the change and everything, did you have any withdrawal symptoms? Um, you know, maybe you could tell the listeners, like, what how you overcame those, you know, to try to help. Because a lot of people, uh, yeah. like, when I used to be an officer, like, they would say, oh, Miss Starnes, I... I don't know if I can get off of it because I suffer from these withdrawals and you don't understand. I get so sick and, you know, they'd always tell me that. So, like, maybe you could, like, give some words of wisdom to that population just to maybe try to help them overcome it if you have any advice on that. Well, I do, but it might kind of be underwhelming. But before that, I want to talk about the drugs that we did. When we did drugs, it wasn't just pot or meth. We did coke. We mixed it together. We did acid. We even shot tequila or we even shot vodka up into our veins intravenously. That was probably the stupidest thing we've ever done. So if there was a way to do drugs, we did it. We never did heroin, but we would uh, take a hit of acid, drop it in our meth, draw it up to a syringe and shoot acid into our veins as well. So we were pretty hardcore about it. But when I quit, Crystal, there were no withdrawals. There was no rehab. I just said, I'm going to start going to church, and I changed my focus, and I just did it. And if there's anybody who should have had withdrawal pains, it was darn sure me. Because I just, man, it was, yeah, it it, (laughs) was, Oh, man. All I can say is ugh to that. We did a lot of drugs. But, yeah, there was no withdrawals, and, I again, it had to be God. It, it had to be because normal people don't do that. Well, I don't want to say like I'm super normal enough. That's probably the wrong word, but people just don't do that. There's always withdrawals. There's always, you know, a rehab, and I just quit. Cold turkey, it was done. I, I did drugs two more times after that with the same person. And then finally I said, man, I can't do this with you. I said, if you want to walk with me, that's fine, but I'm not going to go to hell with you. And he and I never hardly spoke again. I talked to his kids. He's still doing drugs. He's still high. And that was, goodness, 20 years ago. The man's my age now. He's 48 or something like that and still doing drugs. I'm like, how are you still doing drugs? He's like, well, man, I, I got to hustle. I have to survive. What do you suggest I do? And I said, get a job, work. And he, and he kind of laughed it off. He went, no, nah, man, seriously. And I was like, no, I am serious. 
So he's he's still in it. But yeah, so my underwhelming advice um, to those people and pray because doing it your way, your life is as old as however all the audiences listen to it, each individuals doing it your way. What does it got you? Time to try something different. Even if you don't really believe in God, that's the difference. Try it. That's that's my advice. I think that's excellent advice. If they want to quit, they're, they're going to quit. They're going to do it. Yes. Yep. I I believe that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. And is there anything else that you want to talk about? You know about your life that you could you know maybe help somebody else out there. Um, not, probably not as far as my life, but I want people to know that as long as you have breath, you have a purpose. Don't give up on that, and you are worthy simply because you exist. How do I know you're worthy? Because God doesn't make any junk. He doesn't make anybody just to throw away, just to watch de- deteriorate. You're not made to be depressed, angry, the straight-A student gone straight down the drain. That's not who you were meant to be. I believe people are more beautiful than they allow themselves to be. They're smarter than they allow themselves to be. They're, they allow themselves to be. And many people want to take their own life because they think they're worthless. And what they don't understand is they're probably the reason someone has a favorite sunset, a favorite song, a favorite movie, a favorite line from a movie, a favorite humorous time that they remember. They are the reason that somebody looks in the mirror and smiles. But they don't think of that because, again, they're looking at things wrong. They look at what they don't have. And not what they do have. And what they do have is greater than what they don't have. And they don't understand that um, committing suicide, killing yourself, doesn't stop the problem. It just passes the pain onto those who are still alive, your loved ones in your life. So if you're thinking about suicide, if you would dare not hurt one of your family members, then don't commit suicide because that's exactly what you're going to do is just pass that pain on. My friend who shot himself, it hurt my daughter because she knew him, and he had a daughter who was 12 at the time. It hurt her. So we always tell people, well, do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Well, him killing himself didn't hurt anybody unless you look at the mental impact, the emotional impact it had on his daughter. Yeah, that hurt people. Yeah, we need to go out and tell people that you're wrong, but when we try, people go, well, who are you to judge? Who am I to judge? I'm the guy that's been through that, and what you're doing is stupid. Stop it. You're being stupid. Stop it. But we get told off a lot, you know, and we need to stop telling our people who are there to help us, who want to give us advice because we just simply don't agree with it. Because there's going to be a lot that we don't agree with, and people are really trying to help us out there. There are people who have been through what you're going through. Listen to them. But we we don't do that. So... If there's anybody listening, man, I'm going to give you my email at the end of this. If you're going through something, you can email me because I'd rather listen to your problems than read your obituary. And I don't care who you are. I'm glad you're here because life is good because you're here. That's probably all I, I got. I think that's an excellent that message. Goes. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's Again. an excellent message. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're an amazing person because there's – you know, you've survived so much, and, you know, I've seen people overdose over the years, and, you know, maybe if they would have had somebody like you talking with them, they'd still be here today. So I yeah. commend you for 
everything that you've been through and how you've been a strong person because you're a very strong person to be able to to get through life the way you have and and well, you know your daughter I'm sure she loves you so much and you know yeah. you've got you're an amazing father and and always remind her of that that you you did it for her you know I'm sure you do oh. but like. <laughs> I, I, you know. I tell her so many times, Crystal, that when I say it now, she's like, yes, Dad, I've heard it before. I'm like, yeah, and you're going to hear it again because I want her to know <laughs> that how, how important she is to me. You know, and you mentioned me being a strong person. I appreciate that, but I am not strong at all. It's only the hand of God that I'm here. Um, it, the only credit I give myself is I listen when he says jump and I stop when he says stop. And that That is it. <laughs> right, but – you should still give yourself some credit. I mean, God is obviously within all of us, but, you know, you have to earn a little bit of it. I mean, because you are. I mean, you, I I believe that in, inside, like that you, you're very strong to be able to overcome that. But God definitely was with you as well. Fully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got you. I agree. But, um, but I, um, but yeah, like, so if there's ever um, any, Anything else that you want to talk about right now, you can. Otherwise, you can give them, you know, your contact information. Um, My suggestion would be, like, trying to be, like, a sponsor for people. You know, like, you know, they have, like, these AA meetings and NA meetings, and these people can sponsor, you know, recovering addicts do that a lot. I don't know if you do that now, but that would be something that could be helpful to people that are current addicts and trying to get clean, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm open to, to helping people any kind of way. But the best way to get a hold of me right now, I have a website, but it's being rebuilt, so I'm not giving that out just yet until it's done. But it's my email, and it's McCormickMotivation at Yahoo.com. And my last name is M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K, and then the word motivation at Yahoo.com. So anyone wants to get a hold of me, I will respond back. I will read them, and you will get a reply back. It won't be a bot. It will be me. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Um, I loved hearing your story, and I know you're going to do a lot of things going forward. I, I, I just know it. I, I can feel it, and you're amazing. And just keep staying focused on your mission and being strong and being positive, and I think that God will reward you tremendously. Oh, absolutely. Appreciate thank that. Thank you again. And, and, and thank you you're again welcome. for having me. You're welcome. So thank you, everyone, for listening to Mr. McCormick's show, um, speaking and um, going forward. I hope everyone out there um, listens to him and anyone out there that's suffering and has went through what he's went through, reach out to him. Um, I think he could help you. And everyone go out and serve others and, you know, have a good night, everyone. Thank you again. Voice for Victims podcast. Stand up for what is right and leave a legacy behind for others to follow. By Crystal Starnes. Always stand up and make a difference for yourself or someone else. Don't ever suffer in silence.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.